0: people out there killing it in all sorts of assets. I think the coolest thing is that there's different strategies with every niche. Even when I would start hopping on these calls with investors and told, telling them I live in LA and people are like, oh, you can't invest in LA. No one can make it work. And then I hop on this call with this guy down here who's buying out these buildings, doing cash for keys, giving all these tenants $20,000 to move out, jacking up the rents or making 30% ROI on, for their investors within like a year period, like crazy things. And it just goes to show that in every niche, there's a different strategy. And if you know that and kind of focus on what you're good at and kind of pin down what your path is, I think you can make it work.
1: Welcome everyone to the Cassandra Properties Podcast. We are joined today by Savannah Arroyo. Savannah has a really interesting story um, and it's, I think it's going to be a, a, an inspirational story for the audience because you're, you're killing it out there. And I think it's pretty remarkable what you're doing. Uh, of course, we always have Petey and the ones and twos out in the back. And once again, we're joined by the wonderful, remarkable Rebecca. Hi, Rebecca. <laughs> well, hello. So, uh, Savannah, let's jump right in. What you're doing is really nothing short of remarkable. Um, yeah. You're known as the net worth nurse. So for for the audience, um, Savannah is a full time nurse and is running a pretty amazing syndication program uh, for real estate investing, and we're going to get into all of it uh, today. But let's start, Savannah. You're you're out there in LA, right? Yes. And you're you're working full time as a nurse. And what type of what area of the medical profession are you focused on?
0: Yes. Um, when I graduated from nursing school, I tried out a couple different specialties. I did oncology, med-surg, tele. I did ambulatory surgery for a while. I did outpatient stuff. And then I went into management. I just always was kind of drawn to the leadership operational side of things. So early on in my nursing career, I went back to school and got my master's degree in nursing and leadership and administration. So right now I oversee multiple departments at a hospital here in Los Angeles.
1: That's, that's pretty remarkable, and uh, have to say thank you for, you know, the work that you're doing out there on the front lines. I know yeah. you guys have been hit pretty hard, and we've been hit, you know, really hard with coronavirus. So thank you for the work that you're doing, and uh, really remarkable uh, that you're able to to pull both of these these professions down. So um, you you mentioned leadership right off the hop. Uh, were you born and raised in L.A.
0: No, I wasn't. I was, I'm from Northern California. Sacramento is where I was raised. And that's so, where I went to college. W-
1: were there leadership influences in your life early? I mean, this kind of stuff we, we find is it's like typically in the, the woven into the fiber of the DNA of entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, were there early influences that brought you down this path?
0: Uh, Nothing really sticks out in specific. I was always drawn to leadership positions. I noticed when I first became a nurse and when our managers would try and implement new things or have new protocols or they would try and do things for the unit, um, I noticed that there was a lot of resistance and a lot of people would grumble and make remarks. And I, I always understood the management side of things. I always understood where it was coming from. I went along with things and I guess I just... naturally led that way and towards leadership. And then once I got into the program, it made a lot of sense. I was able to read about a lot of influencers, leadership, that sort of thing. And then even as I was growing up in entrepreneurial mindset, I've always read leadership type books. um, And that's kind of always stood out.
1: So um, again, as we, we, the more and more people we speak to here, we find these common threads. Did you play sports or were you uh, involved in any, you know, leadership clubs or anything like that when you were younger?
0: I haven't been asked that. I did play sports. Oh. Yeah. I played soccer growing up. I was on the high school swim team and the high school soccer team as well. So I did organize sports. There
1: you go. So uh, another one of these common uh, traits, it seems that the more and more entrepreneurs we speak to, there's always that kind of common theme, competitive spirit, competitive nature. Yeah. And uh, it makes a lot of sense. So, you're working full time as a nurse. Uh, w- w- how does this whole thing start? I mean, w- where does the what's the origin of of saying, "Hey, I'm gonna go start a real, you know, amazing, you know, syndication and real estate investing program"?
0: Yeah, it was actually when I was on maternity leave with my second daughter that my husband and I were just trying to find out different ways that we could start investing our money. We both worked full time job. We just wanted We had the future in plan in terms of what we were going to be doing with our money and trying to make smart decisions now, especially while our daughters were so young. We started looking into um, college plans, um, that sort of stuff. And then I stumbled upon real estate. And as I started learning about it and all the different niches and strategies within real estate, my husband and I were like, wow, we could really use real estate to If we worked hard at it for the next five, 10 years, put ourselves in a position where we don't even have to work our full time jobs anymore. If we if we didn't want to, if we didn't have to work for anyone else, we could create something of our own and create a business and do this full time and work and be able to travel with our daughters and do really the financial and time freedom is what stood out to us for it. Originally, we started investing in single-family homes, and then shortly after, we were looking for ways to scale and create a business, and that's when we stumbled upon multifamily, and then naturally, we just led into uh, syndications.
1: So before that first investment piece, what other real estate investments had you been a party to, if, if any?
0: None. I mean, we owned our, our primary home and that was something I worked really hard. I was working two jobs. I would worked 20 hour days of nursing I, and then worked up to save a house to buy here in L.A., which a lot of people when I originally moved down here were like, you're moving to L.A., you're never going to be able to afford a home. That's craziness. And I just worked extra hard, picked up shifts in the hospital and saved for a down payment here in L.A., And then when I went to refinance at the beginning of the year, I worked with an amazing lender who looked at the house and was like, do you know, you have over a hundred thousand dollars worth of equity in this house in three years. And I didn't even know really even what that meant, like that you could tap into it and start using it and Mm -hmm. leveraging that sort of stuff. I, I had no idea. And he really opened my eyes into, Hey, you can pull this out with a refi cash out refi, and you can use this to buy other properties if you want. And when, he said that the light bulb went off and we ended up pulling out a mortgage on our primary residence, used it to buy two single family homes in Atlanta. And then we were just hooked. We were like, okay, what else? Now what we can do? How can we scale this?
1: So well, that's amazing. It's interesting. Uh, and, and I get it. It was probably, you know, a barrier to, to the market is, is pricing out in LA, right? Yes. So you made the investment in Atlanta because it was a, a more reasonable entry price?
0: Yes, exactly. Price point entry.
1: So uh, I've I've had holdings and I, I still have some holdings in other states. I found it wicked difficult to manage assets that I couldn't kind of touch and feel. So how did you how did you land in Atlanta specifically first? I mean, did you do any p- specific market research or how did that come together?
0: Yeah, we did a lot of market research. Um, we, like I said, when we got hooked on real estate, started listening to all sorts of podcasts, reading blogs, reading books. I mean, there's hot markets out there for a lot of different reasons. Georgia stood out to us because the film industry, we hear in LA, a lot of the film industry and entertainment industry that's here local to us is moving over into Atlanta, Georgia. And we constantly hear about that. And then as we were looking at the market, there was a lot of other thing, Amazon moving over there, Chick-fil-A headquarters, Walmart's big there. There's just a huge job um, spread and then just a huge growth. And there's a lot of um, city implementations to do um, kind of work and leading different projects within the city that we thought was awesome. There's just been a lot of growth in that city. So we uh, originally started, we wanted to do the Burr method, which is overseeing a complete rehab across the country, which if anyone doesn't know, it's buying a property um, rehabbing it or renovating it, renting it out, refinancing and repeating. And it's a way that you could really scale, uh, stretch your capital, make it roll over and kind of accumulate some properties that way. And then when it came down to it of overseeing a complete renovation across the country of our first time doing it, it was really kind of, um, a a hesitation on our end. And we decided that wasn't that strategy wasn't for us. So we ended up buying new builds over there and they're built to rent properties that have management already in place once they're done building the properties. And again, listening to podcasts, a lot of people are like, you can't cash flow with those kind of properties. There's no way you can make money on it. And we were able to do a lot of research, fed out of d- different companies. And we actually haven't even ever been to Atlanta, Georgia up until this point, but we felt so sure of our research and what we were able to accomplish just by networking with people over there researching. I mean, it's 2021 on Google streets. You can literally walk the streets in the city if you want yeah. to and all around your property and to get a good feel of what it's like being there. So there's a lot of different resources that you can tap into to kind of get over that curve of being nervous of, of investing in a market that you're not necessarily living in.
1: So did you uh, source the contractors through, uh, again, any boots on the ground there or was all that done through the internet also?
0: All of that was done through the internet and then just picking up the phone, having conversations, getting a lot of referrals from other people, that sort of thing.
1: It's remarkable. Uh, Becca and I were watching an interview with Elon Musk uh, a week or two ago and they asked him, you know, you you don't really have a background in rocket science, right? So how is it that, that you got brought up to speed and this became a passion and how did you educate yourself? And his answer was Google. Yeah. Like here's a guy who's investing untold billions of dollars in space exploration, and he literally learned everything that he needed to know from the Internet.
0: It's pretty remarkable, honestly. And I think that's maybe the nursing side of me of us doing research and having a big background on looking at reliable sources and being able to determine which sources are accurate and kind of get down to look at multiple resources on a topic and doing that sort of thing. And it really helps you in the due diligence phase of things of, not taking for granted what the first article you see about something and thinking that that's the end all be all. And that's the truth that you have to keep digging. You have to see who's funding the research, that sort of stuff, who's influencing it. And um, if you can do that with, with some intelligence and kind of some background of how you're using that information to make accurate decisions, then yes, it's very helpful.
1: So the first two single family uh, acquisitions that you made do you still own those
0: now Yes yep we still no. own them
1: so you uh, did, did you have you know did you discuss cap rates or you know your target returns how did you you know analyze those first two first two in particular what was the methodology behind you know okay this is what is going to make it work was it a cash on cash or what was the methodology there?
0: Yeah, we used a basic um, tool from Bigger Pockets, and that was something I found on a YouTube video and then went on to their website. Uh, You can use it for free. They have free versions. We kind of just created our own on an Excel sheet. When you're doing a single family home, it's pretty basic. There's not a lot of expenses. And you can if you're familiar with Excel, you can kind of make it. But there's a lot of tools out there already where you don't even have to do that. And we put it in It had a decent, decent cash return. It was, they still are cash flowing two to $300 a month. And it's in an area that we know is going to see a lot of growth. It's right next to the airport there in Atlanta, which is one of the biggest international airports in the um, country. And we, we feel that we're, banking on appreciation for it, which I know isn't the only thing we're banking on because it does cash flow. And um, our plans really, those are for a buy and hold method. We're really just planning to hold on to those ones.
1: So was it uh, again, were you more concerned with a a cash on cash return at that point? Or was it just, we want to get into some real estate. We wanted to to cash flow. We wanted to be able to depreciate and so on.
0: Yeah, really just that. What just wanting to get in something and hold it for long term, thinking that it's going to appreciate like our home here in Los Angeles has. And we didn't want and we did want something that was cash flowing positively, putting money into our pocket every month. And that's something we can just sit back on. And they're very easy properties, they're brand new buildings, really no maintenance or Cap X expenditures for the next five, 10 years. Um, so we're really just sitting back and holding on to those. And
1: your, um, did you go long on the financing? Is it like a 30-year deal you went in or are you trying to plan for retirement and cut it? Okay.
0: We so did 30-year on both of those and we were able to get in on 15% down for both of them. And so we were able to stretch that initial capital to get two properties.
1: And you you ended up going program for the tenants or uh, private?
0: um they they already had their property management in place so we're using them the people that built it had their management team already in place um and you're using them for the first year and then you have the option to um keep using them or to find someone else after that first year
1: so again for the audience um there really is absolutely no reason or excuse at this point it's an excuse to not make the leap into real estate investing. Rates are historically low. We have, um, you know, this really is an anomaly. It's funny, I've been in the business for almost 25 years now, Savannah. So when I was first doing deals, you know, uh, I think my first deal was 13%. And we were excited that we were able to get in at 13%. Um, And this won't be here forever. You know, we, we have actually a whole generation now of, I call them kids, but, uh, adults that are used to these crazy interest rates, and it's not here to stay. This is a—it's a, it, granted it's been an extended moment in time because of of all the craziness that's happened in the world. But these rates won't be here forever. Uh, and I assume you went fixed rate.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so the the ability to lock in now, uh, folks, at these unbelievable rates, three percent. Uh, and, and, you know, of course, depending on the asset class and, and a, a myriad of other factors, but you're going to be somewhere in that high twos to 4% range. Um, and don't get duped into the, the short-term financing and going adjustable because you want to save an extra quarter or an extra half. Mm-hmm. I promise you interest rates are mm-hmm. going to go back up. I promise you that you will be sitting here, you know, looking back in 10 years going, oh gosh, I've got that adjustable rate coming up. Uh, you have the ability to now lock in. And when you go into these emerging markets, you're getting the double hit, right? You're getting the benefit of incredibly low interest rates, but you're still buying in at a price point that allows for that appreciation that you're pointing out, right? If you're in the right market, so you're not buying at the top of the market, you have some upside there, you're locked in forever, and rents are, are gonna do nothing but go up if you're in the right location. So. Um, it's pretty, pretty cool that you made that leap. Um,
0: Yeah. I think it's interesting. You went for two. Did you buy two right away at the same time? Yeah, we bought them together. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Now what made you uh, decide to go with two instead of just buying one and kind of getting your feet wet with one? Um, I, it was when we were working with a lender who said that he had the option to get us a 15% down. And then that way we could could get into two and really make that initial capital stretch for us. And that sounded good.
1: Absolutely. So, uh, you're going through this, what must have been an amazing experience. Uh, you're relying on all the different assets we have through podcasts and everything else, any books in particular that really you could, you know, point to one or two that really kind of helped in a, a more meaningful way than the others?
0: Yes. um, Financial Freedom Through Real Estate Investing by Michael Blanc. That was the book that I read to switch me over from single family homes to multifamily. After reading that book, my husband and I were very convinced that we could keep working to create this business and put ourselves in a position drastically different in five to 10 years than we are right now through real estate. So that was a big mind shift in that one. Um, Also Grit by Angela Duckworth. That's just something I read even graduating college. And it's really attributed to so much resilience in my life and pushing through and kind of exploring new grounds. I mean, real estate hasn't been in my life very long. And it was something coming into new and knowing that Getting over the imposter um, syndrome of feeling like um, there is space in this realm and learning from other people in it and really giving me the courage to take that first step of buying that first investment property and then to take that first step to build a business and keep moving in the real estate world. So for a
1: period of time, uh, especially when I first got into the business, there was that good old boys network and it was a, a, a bit more challenging to penetrate the markets we didn't have all of these assets available and and people weren't as helpful but i feel like that's changed have you found that the real estate community has, has kind of embraced you know embraced you in and and has been really helpful or
0: Oh, 100%. I am actually still shocked at the amount of support that I get from real estate investors. It's so amazing. And honestly, when I launched my brand, The Net Worth Nurse, and that was, you know, it took a lot of courage to do that. And it was a big step for me. and just in my life and in our business and pushing that out. I didn't receive a lot of feedback from family and friends of like, Oh, that's super cool. Love what you're doing. And it was so interesting, but in the real estate world, people were so juiced about it. Like commenting on like, (laughs) Oh, I love what you're doing. This is so great. You're doing big things. This is so awesome. Like people I don't even know were giving me that support and being the cheerleaders that I needed during that time. And even now in like mastermind groups that I attend or different meetups, it's just, I think it's people with entrepreneur spirit who are naturally just more positive, um, hardworking and not all of us surround ourselves with people like that. Like in our, like maybe our friends and family aren't like that, but when you get into this realm, a lot of the people are like that and it's drastically different. And I've, I've grown to love a lot of the relationships I've created in this space.
1: That's great. So you've got the first two under your belt. You're, you're feeling good. You're, you're cash flowing. Uh, you're looking toward retirement upside. What's next?
0: Yeah. So then we switched into syndication. So that was after reading Michael Blanc's book that I was mentioning earlier, we just started to learn about multifamily, what we wanted to do with that. Um, My husband and I uh, generated some interest from family and friends after they knew that we were buying some of the single family homes. So people were wanting to invest with us. And we took down a 12 unit up in Oregon, uh, syndicated it with family and friends, did a small money raise for that, but still made it a syndication we signed up for a mentorship program just to have the extra support and confidence to make the, that step. Um, I mean, it's a little bit nerve wracking submitting LOIs and underwriting the expenses on a big apartment building and making sure, and there's a lot of legalities and for informing a syndication and that sort of stuff. And so we wanted the extra support of a mentor looking over our shoulders with 20 plus years experience, um, making sure our underwriting was sound, making sure we weren't missing anything. Um, if we had a tricky situation that we were, confronted with that they would kind of give us the tools to get through it. And it was very, very helpful in taking down that first deal. And, um, since then we, uh, launched the brand, the net worth nurse. And that was really, it was so awesome to be able to provide our friends and family, the opportunity to invest in real estate. And after we did that first syndication, we were so blown away with the amount of people who want to get into real estate, but don't necessarily want to do a lot of the heavy lifting. They don't want to do the nitty gritty Mm -hmm. details. They don't want to do the property management or even any of the acquisition, um, due diligence financing things that you need to take care of. And through a syndication, we're able to provide that opportunity with these people and allow them to now get into real estate investing. And we take care of all that. We're the operators of the deal and they're just investing passively and still getting amazing returns. So it was really a perfect fit for us.
1: So for we've got a pretty broad audience. Uh, I think they benefit from, if we could just take a step back, can you walk them through what is a syndication?
0: Yes. So a syndication is basically a a bunch of people pulling together different resources, whether it's capital or different skills that they have in real estate background, pulling together these resources to take down a larger apartment deal. So usually there's an operator of the deal, someone who's running it, finding the property, acquiring the property, doing the due diligence, and then raising money from investors. And then it allows um, people who want to invest in real estate to invest passively. So they're now pulling their money together, passively investing, which means they don't have to do a lot of the work. And then they're getting the returns, and then the operator will update them on what's going on with the building, um, what their finances and expenses look like. Um, usually, it's quarterly disbursements. So for our passive investors who invest with us, we send them a check every three months and kind of give them an update of what's going on with the property, what we plan- what we're doing with it, and um, and that's that's a pretty basic uh, kind of rundown of how syndication works.
1: So this, it was a 14 unit deal in Oregon, yes? Uh,
0: 13.
1: 13 unit. So you're making the shift now when you're going from being responsible for just your capital investment, which is, right, a huge burden and and something that I'm sure weighed on you. And and now you're making the leap to a 13 unit project where you have friends and family. I call them friends and family raises, right? Where you're responsible for other people's investments and and monies. Um, Can you walk us through what diligence are you doing? What type of returns are you looking for for both the investor and, and for yourself? Is there an operations fee that you're taking above and beyond? How does your syndication work?
0: Yes. Um, so in terms of the money raise, uh, raising from fans and family, but still doing our due diligence of vetting out the property, we have an inspector walk the units with us, we're vetting out property management teams who really want to, or who can implement our business strategy. So for that um, 13 unit up in Oregon, Um, Strong value add potential market rent or rents were 25% below market. We had the option to turn in a storage space into a studio. So it really just skyrockets that NOI. And um, so we had to make sure we found a property management uh, company that was willing and able to um, run down that business plan. A lot of conversations, a lot of vetting out people, a lot of due diligence and then raising the money, talking to different lenders to get us different rates, what we could do to finance the building Um, for we do an 80 20 split. So as the operators, we take 20 percent. We give the investors 80 percent of the property. The So the last deal we did was a pretty low cash flowing deal just because market rents or the rents were so below market value, but we have an exit strategy of three years. So it's a pretty short short turnaround for our investors. It's, uh, over 70% return on investment after three years. Um, like I said, low cash on cash, but over 15% IRR around 20% AAR. Um, so pretty good returns on that one. And, um, And then, like I said, in the terms of our communication, we just communicate through our investors through email. A lot of them want to be more passive, but the the we have one investor who really wanted to come and tour the property with us, and we open that up to our investors if it's near where they're living and if they want to come and check it out. Because I mean, the cool thing is you own a part of that building, and you're I mean, it's not like other investments, like your 401k or your 403b, where you're just investing it and kind of watching it on paper. Um, real estate's a tangible asset, and people love that. So we give people the opportunity to come tour the properties with us.
1: So the three-year exit that Mm -hmm. is just on the investor side, are you at that point refi, cashing them out and holding your position or are you actually selling them off?
0: We plan to sell, but this is, we assess all our our business plans and strategies every year and determine if there's been any changes that would reconstitute what our our original plan was. But as of now, when we originally purchased it, Mm -hmm. it was to sell with after three years
1: and at that point are you going to look to 1031 exchange or how does that play out
0: yeah a lot of our investors are interested in that but with the ppm and how it works legally it's a little more difficult to 1031 exchange and a large building like that into something else if you don't have all your investors on board there's a lot of different legalities with that but if we we only have four investors with us on this first deal so it is something that we could potentially do
1: so you you take down this 13 unit building you're cash flowing things are performing you're starting to build a base
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, what's next
0: uh we're under contract right now with a 20 of uh, 24 unit up in that same market when we took down that last deal we created great relationships with the broker Um, So he sends us off market deals that, and he knows exactly what we're looking for. So we're very specific on what kind of deals we're looking for, um, what unit range, what price range, what value add component. And because we're really specific with the broker, he, when he sends us a deal, we're either able to give him a response of what we didn't like about it, or we're able to hop on it really quick. And um, that's something we found very beneficial in all the markets that we're looking at. And so we got the 24 unit under contract. and we're going to, go and visit it next Friday and start doing the due
1: diligence well congratulations that's exciting stuff um I'm curious when you're you're going through your your diligence list uh on the lease side how how deep are you going into the uh, first of all are you looking for for properties that are leased up or do you want to to have the flexibility to partake in some of that upside And, and if you are looking for leases what are the metrics that you're looking for there
0: So for us, I mean, this varies on the market, but on the Oregon market, we're looking for leased buildings. It's a little bit harder to get financing if it's not fully leased. I know in L.A., people are looking for um, Mm. empty buildings so they can jack up that rent. So it really just depends on your market, which strategy you're going to implement. But for us, we're looking for leased buildings. Um, and then what we're doing is increasing the rents pretty much. So in Oregon, there is rent control, but it's, I think so for 2021, it's 9.1% for the year and our business strategy doesn't push us to, uh, raise rents more than that every year. Um, But when we took down that building within um, that first month, our property manager went out and served a 90 day notice to let tenants know that we would be increasing rents 8.9% and none of them objected to it just because it was that below um, market rents.
1: So you're looking for stabilized assets. You want the leases where there's flexibility. You're increasing rents, of course, in accordance with the, the local laws. Um, one thing you touched on, that's been something we've done really well over the years is find, um, pieces of the deal where you can add value repositioning. Mm -hmm. How did that even, how does, how does someone who's just on their second property start to look at these things and go, Hey, wait a minute, you know, this is a storage space. We can convert this to a studio. I mean, that's a, again, for the audience's benefit, that's a complicated, um, Endeavor, right? It's not as simple as, well, let's just go throw some pipes in and convert this thing. There's zoning compliance and there's sign offs from the, we call it the DOB, the Department of Buildings here. There's a lot that goes into a reposition or a value add. How are you, how does that even come to be? And how do you execute that?
0: Yeah, so a couple parts. Um, in terms of understanding where you could potentially add value to a building, that's something we're getting through the podcasts we're listening to, the books we're listening to, the investors that we're networking with, and they're sharing where they're adding value to their businesses and their buildings. And that's what we're looking for. So, water control, um, converting, adding additional units, raising rents. Um, decreasing um, salary expenses. If you have a 90 unit building that has three salary staff on site, you know, decreasing there. So we're getting a lot of that inside knowledge of where you can add value to a property, just really from other people doing it. And we're leveraging what people have done to make that work. Um, In terms of the 13 unit building, the previous owner was an older gentleman in his eighties, the broker he had originally planned to turn that storage space into a studio unit, but he had a bunch of the other properties. This property was sitting on the back burner. He didn't, he had started pulling permits for it and getting it zoned, but just never pulled the trigger on it. And he ended up wanting to sell and buy land in San Diego. So that was a great thing for the broker because he knew we were looking for value add. And he stressed that that was something that could easily be done because the previous owner was already seeking out to do that. And it had already been per. per permits pulled for it and everything. Um, And so that was something that he really just handed over to us on a platter.
1: So, and pardon the the rapid fire questions here, but um, I'm really intrigued. And I I think that uh, for those in the audience that hopefully, you know, you're inspiring to take the plunge here. I want to try and get them as much information as possible to give them the confidence to make this move. Um, So Rebecca invests alongside a lot of the deals that we participate in. Uh, and she's gotten quite an education on the different entities uh, that you can invest through. I'm curious, when mm-hmm. you're doing the raises, uh, what type of a, what what's the corporate structure? What is the vehicle by which you're making the investment in and, and taking title in? LLC. All LLCs.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so <laughs> far, that's what we've been doing.
1: And that allows your investors to take the pass through. And uh, I believe they can also partake in depreciation as well through the LLC, correct?
0: Yes, yeah.
1: okay. So you're setting these up in LLCs and then you're you, you have an offering memorandum that, that you're you're doing for each property. is that is that how you're doing this?
0: Yes, uh-huh. Um, so uh, private placement memorandum offering memorandum or um, I think and then we did the subscription agreement too for the last one.
1: So are you doing like reg D stuff or,
0: Yes, yep. And we have a lawyer um, that we had that we touched base with originally when we started doing this who had a lot of experience in real estate, specifically syndications. And we really let him take the lead on that. He had a lot of great experience. He knew exactly what we needed to do to get it set up. So that was very helpful.
1: So, uh, folks, the the Reg D uh, platform that uh, Savannah is, is referencing, there are kind of like one-stop shop attorney uh, firms that will handle, uh, like there's rules with accredited investors and how the money gets raised and where it gets held. Uh, There's companies that are set up now, uh, law firms that specialize just in this. And literally, if you go to them with a vision, they will put together all of your docs, the subscription docs, the offering. Uh, They even handle compliance to a large extent. It's it's a, it's kind of a plug and play system. So um, you have this set up. You're now taking capital in. Uh, where are you finding investors?
0: Um, so the first one, it was really just through the friends and family. And we're still opening it up to friends and family because um, we do plan to do 506B and then eventually 506C as well. Um, So not giving the opportunity to unaccredited investors is important to us because we were unaccredited when we were looking for that first deal and we realized it would be harder to do it as an unaccredited investor. And then Mm -hmm. so we like to offer that opportunity to our friends and family. Um, I, since then, said we're really juiced about real estate, and we talk about it, and people naturally just start asking questions. People are really, really excited about real estate as well. If you mention that you're doing real estate, they they start asking a lot of questions. So we naturally get a lot of interest just on conversations we have with our inner circle uh, when we do stuff on the weekends. Um, And then at work, um, that's why I ended up launching the Net Worth Nurse. I started realizing a lot of um, my nursing friends and just people I work with work so much and have the money to invest in real estate, but don't really have the, the how to do it and the means behind it. And that was really launching the net worth nurse and being able to cater to these busy medical professionals was really important to me because they're so hardworking. They're working all day, especially during the COVID and they, they're just naturally going down the 503b route. I mean, that's what, when I first became a nurse and they were setting up retirement accounts, they were like, okay, here's fidelity. This is what you're going to invest in. These are the returns you're getting. You can kind of watch it grow on a computer. And that's pretty much it. Like that's as interactive that you're going to get in your investments. And so when I talk about real estate to these people, they're so interested in it because it is a tangible asset. It's a lot different than what they're used to and really just explaining and educating people on what it looks like and what their returns looks like. It brings out a lot of interest. So what well, I the... think, I'm sorry. Go go ahead. Ahead. I was going to say, um, you know, for a lot of people who, you know, might be listening and think, well, I work a full-time job. This is something I would love to do, but how much time is it going to take me? Is it possible, you know, really to do a full-time career and this, what what are your thoughts on that? Do do what I'm doing in the syndication or be a passive investor in one? Uh what you're doing in the syndication. Yeah. I mean, we do, we spend a lot of time doing it. So we're putting in a lot of work right now, my husband and I, but knowing that it's gonna pay off for us. And I mean, a lot of work for us is maybe 10 hours a week um for now. I, I mean we would love to so get it's to the feasible. Point where, yeah. Yes. So yeah. it is feasible. Like we would love to get to a point where we're doing it full time, but for now we're putting 10 hours a week into it each and we're getting pretty good traction. So
1: you That's mentioned something before, what what's the 506B and 506C?
0: So 506B is a money raise that you can do with unaccredited investors. So to be an accredited investor, you have to have Um, a net worth of over a million dollars, or you have to make over, um, I think right now it's $200,000 annually, or if it's joint $300,000 annually. And there's a lot of other qualifications, but those are the two main ones. So you have to meet both of those checked off a list in order to be an accredited investor. So originally when my husband and I were looking to passively invest in a syndication, there was a lot of these big operators out there who only appeal to an, or accredited investors, because when you're appealing to non accredited investors, you can't solicit your deal. So you can't be posting it on um, Instagram or Facebook and trying to raise money that way. If it's a 506B, it needs to be with only people you've had a pre existing relationship with.
1: So, what is the current minimum investor uh, amount that you'll allow to buy in for?
0: We've done 25,000, the standards 50 for us. And that's pretty standard across the syndication business. Any syndicators that you look out there doing it, 50,000 is pretty standard for that. Although we have done 25 um, for our last deal, just so that we can get one of um, our family members in there.
1: And you're reporting uh, the performance of the asset back to the investment group. How often uh, and, and what type of metrics are, are you using in that report?
0: Yes, so for the first six months, we're reporting monthly. So I send it the first Tuesday of every month. I send a quick um, update email, just kind of what's going on with the property, different pictures if I have it, because we're renovating that um, studio unit, kind of what's going on, what to expect for tax season, and the K-1 forms that the investors get, because they do um, get a K-1 form, which is similar to a 1099 where they um, it's additional income. Um, And then we update them every month for the first six months. And then after that quarterly, and then along with it, their check gets sent with them.
1: And are you using a a software or, or a program to help with the tracking and reporting?
0: Yes. I'm using active campaign. It's a, it's an email campaign. I searched out a bunch of different ones. I started talking to other investors who are using different um, email campaigns and um, I like it. It's really cool. If anyone doesn't have it, there's a lot of amazing features that I didn't even know existed when I send out a campaign, I'm doing monthly newsletters. Now you can see how many times people open your emails, at what time they open it, if they click on anything, like I had no idea that even existed, but you can see if someone's opening your email like 10 times, okay, maybe this person's interested in it. I'm going to reach out to them and do an extra step of seeing, you know, kind of what they're looking at in terms of investing. So there's a lot of cool features on those email campaigns and it's worth paying for.
1: So there are so many amazing tools in the digital toolbox now. Yes. Um, we were talking about during the the pandemic, we, we've we been using Matterport tours. How long have we been using them now, Bex? Um, two years. Two years. So we, we yeah. went to Matterport tours where they're fully immersive. It like legit feels like mm. you're in the property. So cool for some of the the bigger deals we even send out like these goggles and they can put their phone in and you're you're fully immersed in the property like you notice yeah. more through those tours because you're not rushed you don't feel the pressure mm-hmm. there's not an agent or somebody else looming over you there's not another appointment where somebody has to come in behind you like you notice the detail of the woodwork i mean we we yeah. even tell our clients turn your mail upside down because you can read statements that's how clear and accurate it is. So a point I'm trying to make here is we we sold our first property during the pandemic. Uh, it was a mm-hmm. over a million dollar sale and it was someone who never set foot in the house and they closed, never being there, never seeing the asset at all. Uh, there are so many great tools uh, to help you launch a real estate career now, track the career, follow the metrics, do so much of the Pouring through the data because there's so much data available now that you're able to get a really neat snapshot. So you're compiling this stuff and you're using um, this software to deploy and to kind of track who's interested and in, in what's happening. What about the actual investors themselves? Do they have a line of communication to you? Do you do you allow for that type of input back from the investors?
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially because they're family and friends and people we know, because we're doing 506B deals. So it's people we've had an, a relationship with that are investing with us. So we definitely have the communication lines very open.
1: And I'm curious, are they getting involved like in the, in the nuance of, hey, you know, I, I think we could be getting $100 mm-hmm. more a month for this apartment if we stage it, or has it been pretty passive?
0: For us, we haven't noticed that, but I have heard horror stories from other operators where they do have passive investors wanting to take a more active role. Um, so I think it just at that point you got to be really clear on your communication.
1: Yeah, and and really clear in your subscription docs, right? Because mm,
0: yeah, um, mm, yeah.
1: we've been a party to some deals where. Uh, Everyone thinks they're an expert, <laughs> and very quickly you get into discussions about if you should be evicting people and what right. other things you can do to, to uh, you know, focus on upside. So, uh, any interest in commercial investing? Uh, you know, like retail, office, uh, industrial, or you're going to keep it resi for now.
0: I'm sticking with what I know. I'm trying to niche down and really kind of stay focused on one thing. Um, so no, I haven't looked into it. I know there's I know there's people out there killing it in all sorts of assets. I think the coolest thing is that there's different strategies with every niche. And even when I would start hopping on these calls with investors and telling them I live in LA and people are like, oh, you can't invest in LA. No one can make it work. And then I hop on this call with this guy down here, who's buying out these buildings, doing cash for keys, giving all these tenants $20,000 to move out, jacking up the rents. They're making like 30% ROI on the, for their investors within like a year period, like crazy things. And it just goes to show that in every niche, there's a different strategy. And if you know that and kind of focus on what you're good at and kind of pin down what your path is, I think you can make it work.
1: So for us, um, part of our analysis, anytime we enter into a new market, or we're looking at a new asset class, we do a SWOT analysis, a pretty hefty SWOT analysis. And we've noticed over the last two years or so, one of the things that's now at the absolute top of every one of our threat charts, especially on the residential side has been legislation, legislative threats. Mm -hmm. I'm Mm -hmm. curious if that's something that's on your radar yet. And is it something that you're seeing out on the West Coast uh, get more aggressive uh, from a tenant per protection perspective as well?
0: Yeah, we we really stay up to date on all the things that are going on, um, especially investing in Oregon, which is pretty liberal, liberal um, tenant friendly state. And so a lot of people were really nervous when we said what we were investing over there, but we have a property management company who is on calls like at least monthly going over different Props that are getting rolled out, different um, things that are helping for landlords. So starting March 1st over in Oregon, they're rolling out grants for um, landlords where they can collect, uh, they'll get 80% of uncollected rent. They'll be able to get a grant from the state. So uh, different things happening in all different markets. So it's very important when you're investing in a market or even doing your research on it, if one you want to get into, to look at all that stuff. It's so very important in your deals.
1: Yeah. So Rebecca even found a site where, and we're pretty active locally in the politics, but again, as you started outside of the backyard, she found a great site uh, where you basically put in the topics that you're interested in and you put in yep. the state that you're interested in and it will email you not only like bills that are passed, but even intros, things mm-hmm. that are being contemplated. Uh, of course, we're on the real estate side in the respective right. markets and you get a really good sense very quickly of where the legislative mindset is and where things are headed. Yes. Um, so during Corona, have you seen... a? attrition with with tenants? Are you seeing people move out? Have you had issues with payment?
0: On our 13-unit building up in Oregon, we've had zero delinquencies throughout the whole pandemic, which is pretty crazy. Um, We're always kind of shocked when our property manager lets us know that, but it's a very strong rental market. The markets that we're investing in in Oregon pretty much have a 0% vacancy rate because there's n- there's no there's no inventory. People don't have a lot of places to rent. I mean, even when we were vetting out some of these complexes, we would call the apartments acting as a renter asking when we can get in, we want to rent, how how soon can we get in and all these places were booked up, like waiting lists, you can't get in. And so when we're trying to be strategic about investing in c- during COVID, looking for a market like that, a sh- very strong rental market has been huge for us. And it's proven pretty successful, at least for that 13 unit of having zero delinquencies. Uh, The building that we went under contract with um, 24 unit, there are a few delinquencies that have kind of accumulated over a few month period. Um, And a couple of different reasons for that just based on the tenants, but they did start trending down. And then when we sent over our um, purchase agreement to the seller, we just added in additional clauses that we weren't gonna be um, reliable for collecting that uh, delinquent rent. Like we just made sure that now there's legal things that we have to input into these documents to kind of um, self-serve and make sure that we're covering all our bases.
1: So syndication, again, just to kind of peel it back a little bit because I hear JV thrown around all the time. Oh, I'm getting into a JV, I'm getting into a JV. There's a big difference between a JV and a syndication, right? Yes. Can you walk through the audience, just kind of the finer points of what you can expect in each type of deal?
0: Yes. So a JV is a joint venture and that's moving together um, with usually another operator and you're wanting to split different parts of the partnership and kind of what the day-to-day tasks would be like. And most likely bringing either half and half capital um, so for a joint venture, there's pretty much four big parts of a deal. The acquisition phase of taking down the deal, doing the da- due diligence, finding the deal. Um, there is the um, capital raise. So bringing the capital to take down the deal. So if uh, you have a partner that's bringing in the capital raise, they would they, you could potentially joint venture with them and they would get a percentage of the deal for bringing that capital to the deal. Um, There's also the asset manager and that's someone who's overseeing the property throughout the life of the investment of making sure that you're raising rents uh, according to how you underwrote the property or making sure that that unit gets renovated on time so that you can start renting it out. So if that's something that a, a general partner wants to bring, they could be doing that part of the deal. And then there's also... The financing part of it. So, um, to take down these bigger deals, you you usually have to have the net worth or the experience to qualify with a bank. They're a little bit different. That's kind of one of the biggest hurdles that we um we're faced with switching from single family over into the multifamily realm was in financing a lot of the numbers are based on the building so you don't have to necessarily show your your credit and i mean you show your credit but you're not solely reliable for the building the um, the bank looks at how the building performs and uses that to underwrite their loan terms but you do have to have the net worth liquidity requirements that are usually um, in the same as the loan or the same as the building. So if you're taking down a million dollar building, you need a million dollar net worth liquidity, um, in your name. So that can be kind of hard if you're coming in from single family homes. So a joint venture really just people coming together and bringing any part of the deal that they want to kind of oversee and then signing on into it together and managing it together. It's, it's a little less work, depending on how big the building is.
1: Yeah. It's, um, and, and with that comes obligations and responsibilities. So, so if you're looking for uh, a more passive way of investing, the syndication route without question is the way to go. Yes. Um, I'm curious, who, who's the guarantor on your debt on the financing?
0: Um, so us, we did, and then we had one of our investors sign on the loan to with us as well. And um, with them, we were able to meet the net worth liquidity requirements. And then we were able to give them a sliver of the general partnership on the deal.
1: Yeah. Okay, so you, if they're participating and they're putting up the their signature as well as capital, there's yeah. some upside in the deal.
0: Yeah. The crazy thing about the spreadsheets and just structuring deals is there is so many different ways you can do it. You can, you can literally slice up the pie or structure Mm -hmm. the deal to meet all these different requirements for investors or general partners. And it's really amazing because you can make really anything work. We, when we were doing that first syndication deal, We, um, during the last week, right before close, our bank told us that we, as the owners had to own 51% of the building, and that was something we weren't really, uh, prepared for, but then through the spreadsheet we had and the underwriting tool, we were able to kind of structure a way of how we could make that work by investing more money into it ourselves. And then asking one of the investors to come on the loan as a guarantor as well. Um, so that's, that's a really cool thing about these deals.
1: Have you found uh, with with it's unique to each bank, but have you found that if one of your syndication partners owns over 10 or 15 percent of the syndication that they're then requiring them also as a signator?
0: that I have heard that not not for any of the buildings that we own. That's not something that we're doing, but I, it is different for credit unions. They have kind of a standard, what they're looking for. Banks are a little bit different. And then when you move into agency debt, which is Fannie Freddie loans, they're completely different as well. So that was something that we did a lot of research and front work on of having conversations with different brokers and lenders and diving into all the different financing tools out there and all the different ways that you can get financing for a property.
1: So uh, I want to invest with Savannah. Um, I've got 50,000. I want to participate. I'm passive. I've got my own real estate deals, but I'd like to have a piece of some deals out on the West Coast. Um, What can I expect from a return perspective? And are they guaranteed returns? Are they targets? How does all of
0: that work? Um, so we haven't done preferred returns on any of our deals now. Um, if anyone know, doesn't know about that, that's putting in a return schedule for your deals where the investors are getting paid out first, guaranteed before the operators get any percentage of the returns of on the property. Uh, that's pretty common in a lot of syndications out there. And it really just kind of guarantees the passive investors investing in the deal that they're going to get paid before the operator gets paid. So that's usually in best interest for the investors to seek out something like that. We haven't structured anything into that, into our deals, but we have very strong returns. So we haven't necessarily had to, but we do look at every deal of how we could potentially add that in depending on, you got to know your investors when you're syndicating out a deal and kind of what returns they're looking for. Um, 50,000 is pretty standard to get in for us. Um, We're looking to double that equity within five years, usually return on investment. And then, depending on what asset it is, like that last one I mentioned, had a lower cash flowing, um, but a, ha- a sooner payout. There's a lot of different factors involved and a lot of uh, different ways you can structure the deal. So, it'd be hard to kind of pinpoint one exact return.
1: So, are they, uh, so just to, to clarify here, and then I'll move on to the next piece. So, PREF returns on capital is, is essentially where uh, the passive investors are making the demand that when there's distribution, um, right, different different than revenue, when you actually get to a distribution, the first money that's cut out of the entity would go to those investors uh, before the operating partner, which is what Savannah and her husband are doing. So mm-hmm. you guys are not doing that, and, and, and kudos for you for not doing that because you're doing the work and you're the one that's out there on the front line. So believe me, I I understand that. Um, And I understand that we don't wanna talk about specific returns, uh, but you're not guaranteeing uh, returns, right? I mean, this is a speculative business and things happen. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. I mean, really similar to your 401k and 403b. I mean, nothing's really going to be guaranteed in terms of investments. I mean, I don't really know any investments where they're guaranteeing any any type of returns like that. I mean, we have our pro forma and then we provide all the evidence of why we think that we're going to get there. All the homework we've done, all the research we've done to show that this is most likely what's going to happen with these numbers. And that's pretty, um, pretty standard in syndications. And it's really reassuring to our investors as well, would they they get a lot of comfort in the amount of due diligence we do on our deals? Yeah. so um,
1: even the the best guarantee, from a syndication is only as good as the person who's making the guarantee.
0: Oh, it is all about the operator mm-hmm. in those deals. I mean, if you read books and talk to people who have invested passively in deals as a LP or limited partner, you you have to vet out the operator in the deal. Either look at their track record, why they love a deal. If they're giving you a deal to invest in, they should have a hundred reasons why they love the deal. Um, all the due diligence they've done in it, yeah. You, the operator is huge if you're going to invest passively.
1: Yeah, the, the operator is everything. And again, mm-hmm. even if, if the operator is giving you guaranteed returns, we have a, a healthy consulting division. And I can't tell you how many times people have come to us like, hey, I'm thinking about putting money here. There's, it's a guarantee. It's yeah. a guarantee. But well, mm-hmm. hold on a minute. What, what is the <laughs> Who's the actual guarantor? What are their assets? What's their track record? And I, I don't think I've had an instance yet where I've seen any guarantees of substance, where there was any substance behind the guarantee, yeah, so, yeah, you know, real estate speculative—that's that's what it is. And you want people like Savannah, that are passionate about it and that are out there hustling. And clearly, you've done a ton of homework, and I think that's that's amazing. So, um, one more question on the structure. So, let's say we get to the three-year, you know, benchmark, and you decide at that point you're going to sell the asset do the investors who uh, were a part of the syndication have any ability to purchase the asset from the group at that point?
0: Um, Not through, so not through the legal documents that we were drawn out by our lawyer, no. But I think there would be an option if they were to buy it, I don't know, with another syndication maybe, is that what you're saying? Um,
1: No, so like I've been a party to some transactions where, Uh, If the deal is running great and it's a three year timeline, uh, you know, especially if I'm first money in, I'll say, okay, uh, you need to raise a million bucks. I'll put in two hundred and fifty thousand. But when it comes time to liquidate, uh, if these are the returns and this is where we think we're going to be, I want to be able to buy this at X dollars or at fair market value before we go to the open market
0: got it i see what you're saying that's not something that we put into our legal documents but i could imagine if that's something that one of our investors wanted to do we would at least tolerate the conversation and see what that looked like
1: cool so have you actually sat down and are you every year writing like physically writing out goals of of where you want to be and how much capital you want to raise and how many buildings you want to acquire are you getting into that full exercise
0: Oh, yes, this is that's something I've been doing since I graduated high school. When I was in college, I was doing that sort of stuff. And I love it. That was something my dad instilled into me when I graduated high school to be specific about goals. And that is, I think, one of the main reasons I've been able to get to the point of where I'm at is because I've been so specific on my goals and what I need to do to get there.
1: There's a a huge difference between being intentional and Mm -hmm. working hard, right? So uh, we found that uh, through a, a business coach that we're working with, you know, when you take the time to they call it a plan ahead and you actually do the exercise and you write it out and you have very, very specific and clear goals. And you sit there, and for us it's once a week, or uh, for others it could be once a month, and you actually go and you revisit those goals and Mm -hmm. remind yourself constantly if you're on track or not. It has such a profound effect on how intentional you are in what you're trying to achieve.
0: Huge, huge. Um, Tony Robbins was a huge person that I used to get there in terms of goal setting and being intentional. And I'll still watch his videos of how to specifically set goals and what that looks like. I mean, I did it for New Year's, but there's nothing better than looking back at goals that you set 10 years ago mm-hmm. and knowing that you crushed them and even sooner than you could have ever imagined. So it's it's so rewarding on both ends.
1: No, No doubt about it. Uh, Samantha, this has been fascinating. I, I think your your story is going to um, inspire some people in the audience. I genuinely mean that. I think it's remarkable that you've you know you've got this full time career uh, and a career that must have a, a pretty heavy emotional toll, right? The nursing mm-hmm. side of it has to carry with it a lot of things that must be challenging to to manage and for you to go ahead and launch this with such success and such precision. I'm really impressed at how well thought out the plan is. And and I wish you all the best. Um, How do people find you?
0: Um, At The Net Worth Nurse. You can find me under The Net Worth Nurse under all social media handles. So that's Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn. Uh, My website's thenetworthnurse.com. My email's on there. If you're any remotely interested in what I've been saying, reach out to me. I love talking to other people about real estate.
1: Well, thank you very much for the time tonight, Savannah. Yes, Uh, thank you. I'm going to give you a a bit of advice. So be careful because- (laughs) It, it, you could see you you light up when you talk about real estate mm-hmm. and there's a passion and a love and and many times we get into these things and we do it because we want free time and we want the ability to you know be at every event and spend more time with the family and then next thing you know you wake up and you're working 100 hours a week <laughs> involved in all of these deals so uh, i wish you nothing but the best and i hope you can you can continue to maintain that balance you and your husband god bless i really appreciate the time tonight
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Absolutely. Thanks, everyone.
0: Please please keep those comments
1: coming and suggestions. Uh, Everybody out there, please stay safe.